Dear people of God, <clears throat> our text for this morning is Psalm 133. And the theme of the psalm is living together in unity. It deals with the delight and the blessing of living the reality of the communion of saints. Let me say a few things first about this psalm in its original setting in Israel, then about what difference it makes for us to be hearing this psalm as New Testament believers, and finally to suggest some ways in which we can apply this psalm to our lives today. First then, let's take a closer look to, at the psalm itself. It is one of the psalms of ascent, possibly sung by the Israelites as they would go up to Jerusalem for the three annual festivals, and it is ascribed, like many of the psalms, to King David. It's a short psalm, and it has a clear structure. It begins with an exclamation of delight. It elaborates on that exclamation with two startling images and then concludes with an assurance of blessing. The initial exclamation is found in verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. The psalmist exclaims at how delightful it is for brothers to live together in unity. Of course, brothers is meant to be understood generically, including both male and female members of God's family. That's why the NRSV substitutes kindred for brothers, and the revised NIV, instead of brothers, has God's people. And you'll notice when we sing the versification of this psalm later in the sermon, after the sermon, that it begins as follows, how good and pleasant is the sight when Christians make it their delight to live in blessed accord. For the psalmist, the brothers and sisters he has in view are his fellow Israelites, those who made up the chosen people of God. When they live together in unity, without fighting and dissension, without feuds and jealousies, it's a truly wonderful experience. Perhaps David was led to make this exclamation because he, rend he remembers occasions when the Israelites did not live at peace with each other. And we know that there were lots of examples that are recorded in the Old Testament where the Israelites were at war with each other. But the situation he is now describing is one of national unity of the Israelites living in harmony with each other. But then, David elaborates on this initial exclamation by using two startling images which are rather foreign to us. He compares the experience of God's people living together in unity to two things, oil and dew. The first image is found in verse 2. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. Notice the picture of the downward flow cascading down from the top of Aaron's head to his beard and then down to his priestly robes. This image seems very strange to us. How can the experience of the unity of God's people be compared to oil that someone pours over your head and it drips all over your clothes? 
For a moment, I thought of taking a, uh, a bottle of olive oil with me this morning and just pouring it over my head this morning and letting it drip all over my clothes. But I think I won't do that. <laughs> Maybe two things can help us at least partially understand this odd image, the way oil was used in general in the biblical world and the specific way it was used for anointing the high priest in Israel. Among other things, oil was used as a kind of cosmetic. For example, banquet guests in the biblical world were often treated by a, a generous host to fine oils for anointing their forehead. This provided not only a glistening sheen to their faces, but it would also add fragrance to their persons and the room. But of course, oil was also used for anointing. And there was a special anointing oil that was used for the high priest. That is what the psalmist is talking about here when he mentions the oil poured on the head of Aaron, the first high priest. The oil that was used for the anointing of the high priest was a very special olive oil compounded with myrrh, cinnamon, cane, and cassia. And in Exodus 30, we find a very elaborate description of the recipe, the very special recipe that was to be used for making this anointing oil. Let me read it to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels, of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hin of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. And then it goes on to say this, anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on men's bodies and do not make any oil with the same formula. It is sacred, and you are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfume like it and whoever puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from his people. So that's a very severe commandment that if anyone were to make this special oil and use it for anything else but anointing the high priest, he would be in effect excommunicated. So the oil that was poured on Aaron's head was a fragrant luxury item which served as a symbol of consecration, of an anointing to a holy office. And it dripped onto his beard and from there onto his robes. So how was the experience of brotherly unity like this oil? A lot is left to our imagination, but I imagine it has to do with the fragrance of the anointing oil, with the sense of receiving a, an expensive cosmetic treatment that makes you feel good, and especially with a sense of consecration, of being specially chosen. And the connection with brotherly unity may also have to do with the robes onto which the oil dripped, because the high priest's vestment 
had gemstones in the front of them, and on those gemstones were inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Perhaps the togetherness of all Israel's tribes, symbolized by these gemstones on the high priest's chest, triggered the association with the anointing oil. So that's the image of oil. The second image is that of dew, and is described in the first part of verse 3. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. This, too, is a strange image. Hermon is a mountain to the north of Israel. It is a peak of the mountain range that is called Anti-Lebanon. As you may know, there's a mountain range called Lebanon, then there's a valley between it and and a parallel mountain range, which is called Anti-Lebanon. And in that second range, the highest peak was Mount Hermon. It was north of Israel. It was not actually part of it. Israelite territory. And it is much higher than Mount Zion, and it has a much heavier dewfall than Jerusalem. Actually, the word, the Hebrew word tal, which is translated as dew here, can also mean night mist and light drizzle. And in a country like Palestine, rainfall, including dew, was essential for agriculture. Some parts of the country can grow crops without any regular rainfall, but with heavy moisture of dew or night mist, which falls during the night on on the, uh, the land. Water, of course, is the precondition of life. No water, no life. And that dew is refreshing and life giving. So the psalmist is using a very bold image. The dew from Hermon will fall on Zion. The abundant resources from a faraway mountain will be transferred to the mountain where God's temple stands and his people worship him. So how was the experience of brotherly love like the dew or night mist of Mount Hermon? It is refreshing. It is life-giving. It is abundant. So those are the two images which David uses to illustrate the delights of unity in the people of God. And finally, the psalm closes with the assurance of blessing. We find this in the second part of verse 3. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore, or forevermore. Why is the unity of God's people so wonderful? Because there, that is, in such unity, God bestows his blessing. It is in a harmonious and unified people that God wants to bestow his blessing. Actually, what the Hebrew says literally is not that the Lord bestows blessing, but that he commands it. That's why we read in the King James Version, for there the Lord commanded his blessing. Where the people of God live in unity, there he will command his blessing. Or as the NRSV has it, there he will ordain it. He will make it happen with his sovereign authority. 
And of what does this blessing consist, which he commands? The text is very explicit. Life forevermore. In the Old Testament context, this does, this does not mean immortality, but living life to the full, to the end of your days, and down through the generations. Eternal life in the New Testament sense is not yet part of the picture. This will be part of the progressive revelation of God. So that's the psalm in a nutshell. An exclamation of delight, two strange and graphic images to elaborate on that exclamation, and then the assurance of blessing. It is all about the basic theme of how good and pleasant it is for God's people to live together in unity. Before moving on to some thoughts on how this applies to us today, let me briefly highlight the difference it makes for us hearing this psalm as New Testament believers. The big difference is, of course, that the Messiah promised in the Old Testament has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And we Christian believers are a multi-ethnic body of Christ. That means that the term brothers which in New Testament Greek generally means siblings without distinction of gender, is no longer ethnically defined. The brothers of which the psalmist spoke were virtually all Israelites or Jews because they belonged to the ethnically defined chosen people of Israel. But that is no longer the case for the people of the New Testament, for the New Testament people of God. The gospel has spread to all nations, and that's why we Gentiles, I imagine that the overwhelming number of us here this morning are not Jews, but Gentiles, that's why we Gentiles can now be included in God's covenant people. This is actually a miracle of world history, that the promise to Abraham, namely that he and his seed would be a blessing to all nations, has come to pass and that there is now not a nation under heaven where there are not Christian believers. And they, they belong to every conceivable ethnic group. God has worked out his gracious purposes over the centuries, over the more, the more than four, almost four millennia since the time of Abraham. This is really truly amazing. The promise given to Abraham 4,000 years ago that his people would be a blessing to all nations has come to pass. It's amazing. Another difference is that the two images which David uses to illustrate brotherly unity have different resonances for us now. Or rather, those images have expanded resonances now. Now, when we think of the oil that consecrated the high priest, we are reminded of the fact that as Christ believers, we are now all priests of God, consecrated for his service in every area of light the priesthood of all believers, as the Reformer said. We are a nation of priests. It's not only Aaron that gets the anointing oil. In a sense, we all do. And now, when we think of the dew of Hermon, we are reminded of the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming down on us like a cleansing rain when we come to faith. And many Christians have had subsequent experiences of being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is like being washed over with a cleansing, purifying liquid. 
often when Christians talk about this, this fullness of the Spirit coming over them, they describe it in terms of liquid washing over them, pouring over them. Both oil and dew are liquids that come down on us as blessings from above. And that is reminiscent in the New Testament context of the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost by which the Christian church was created. In the New Testament context, we also have another high priest beyond Aaron and his sons, one who prays for the unity of the church. Jesus, in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, prays for the unity of the church. Bearing these things in mind, what are some of the ways which we can apply this psalm about the unity of believers to our lives today? Taking seriously that God assures that us that he will command his blessing on brothers and sisters living in unity. How can we promote such unity among Christian brothers and sisters? How can we take steps to remove barriers to such unity? How can we encourage and expand the unifying elements that are already in place? Let me briefly say a word or two about the relevance of this psalm's message about brotherly unity on four levels, the congregational level, the denominational level, the interdenominational level, and the international level. Number one, the congregational level. I won't say much about this because this is not my home congregation, but I suspect that this congregation is not unlike my own, which has been relatively peaceful and harmonious in recent years. However, we are not unscarred by the divisions of the denomination at large. Many of us have family members who have left the CRC. As a denomination, we have a history of dividing over confessional issues. There is a need for reconciliation and forgiveness. And you may know that at the synod, which uh, took place just a few weeks ago, there was an overture that, that, that some uh, initiative be taken to reach out to our brothers and sisters who left us in the 90s. And unfortunately, it didn't really go anywhere. Like any congregation, I'm sure you too have the challenge of enfolding newcomers into your fellowship. As you attract new members, you must be intentional about actively promoting the integration of new members and not allowing a division to arise between old-timers and new-timers. Number two, the denominational level. As a denomination, the Christian Reformed Church in North America, we face some pretty serious challenges. We are losing many of our young people. A few years ago, there was a whole series of abrupt resignations in senior leadership positions. The problem of being a binational church continues to be acute. Our denominational college is experiencing declining enrollment and has had to lay off quite a few faculty and staff. Like many other denominations, we are facing the difficult and potentially divisive questions of biblical faithfulness regarding sexuality and marriage. It is easy to get into the blame game and to begin to form fashions and cliques. We must do everything we can to avoid this. Three, the interdenominational level. 
You could also call this the ecumenical level. As the Christian Reformed Church, we have a history of being quite isolated from other Christian denominations. In fact, we have a reputation of being rather standoffish and arrogant, although thankfully that has begun to change in recent years. We need to repent of that isolationist attitude, to engage with our brothers and sisters in other traditions, and at the same time to share with others the strengths and riches of our own tradition in a winsome way. One encouraging sign is the cooperation of 18 churches in true city of Hamilton, of which you are also a member. Fourthly, the international level. We need to have closer ties with Christians who are distant from us in a geographical sense. With modern means of travel and communication, this is possible today in a way which it was never before. It is tempting to identify the church with our own congregation or our own denomination or even like-minded congregations in our own city. But the church, biblically speaking, is the gathering of believers everywhere around the world. And we need to foster a sense of solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the globe. This can be done in multiple ways through supporting foreign missionaries, through going on short-term mission trips, through sponsoring Christian refugees, and much more. And I know that people in this congregation are doing many of these things. In all these ways, let us be reminded to promote the local and global unity of the church and to expect the blessing which God commands on such unity. To that, let all God's people say, Amen. Shall we pray? Dear God, we know that as a denomination we have a history and a reputation of not being that unified, of dividing over fine points of doctrine, of thinking of ourselves as much better than other Christian denominations, and we want to repent of that. And we want to take to heart what you teach us here through the Psalm of King David about the beauty and the glory of unity of brothers and sisters living together in harmony. We pray that you will work in our hearts so that the reality of the images that, that the Apostle uses to illustrate that uh, may become evident in our lives, that we too may in, in the way we relate to one another may be like the oil of consecration and the dew of Mount Hermon. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.